it's time for us to accept that the future of medicine exists here. This is going to be the next 30 years of clinical research. This is the real deal. It's not a fad. This is the future of medicine, and it's going to change the way that we approach everything when it comes to healthcare. The first and best victory is to conquer self. Welcome to the Conqueror Approach, a journey of self-mastery. To cultivate our mind, body, spirit, financial literacy, and allow our light to shine upon the world. Brought to you by me, your host, U.S. Navy submarine veteran and entrepreneur, Musa Mikkel. Let's conquer. Welcome to the Conqueror Approach. I appreciate you for tuning in. Today, I have Dr. Bolsowitz, also goes by Dr. B. He's a top gastroenterologist doctor of over 14 years who has a master in science in clinical investigation, certification in nutrition, author of the New York Times, US Today, and publisher of Weekly's best-selling book, Fiber Fueled, and the founder of PlantFedGut.com. Dr. B and his team helps thousands of people in creating incredible results in their health and well-being with one simple act, learning to take better care of their gut health with the power of plants. Thank you, Dr. B. Such an honor to have you. Musa, it's an honor to be here with you, my friends. I'm excited to uh, dive into this and talk about all things gut health uh, so that hopefully we can help out some of the people who are listening here today. Absolutely. And it definitely helped me a lot when I come when I came across your work, uh, especially with Fiber Fuel. I've been plant-based for a couple of years now. And then reading your book just kind of evolved my entire way of life uh, by truly understanding the importance of gut health. And one of the things I really loved was your perspective in the book. And you talked about how our body is an ecosystem, which I didn't really understand. Um, but how is our body an ecosystem? You know, it's quite fascinating. We, we think of ourselves as these big, powerful, autonomous creatures, right? Like humans, we are the top of the food chain. We are the masters of the domain. We can change everything around us if we want to. And... The more that I've learned, the more that I've realized that that's simply not true. That the world is about balance, it's about harmony. We are all interconnected. And like, I am not Musa, like, <laughs> you know, I'm not a woo woo kind of guy. Um, I'm not, you know, here to talk about like uh, planes of uh, existence and things like that. Um, but it really is true that we, we have this ecosystem that actually lives inside of us, inside of our colon, which is our gut microbiota. And there are 39 trillion of them. All right, now they're invisible, you can't see them, but like to put into perspective how many of them there are, if the people who are listening at home were to take a look at their thumb, they would see that on that thumb there are literally as many microbes as there are people in the UK literally right there on your skin. And that's a small fraction when you compare that to the number of microbes that exist within your colon. You know, to, to get to the number that we have in our colon, 39 trillion, you would have to take all of the stars in the sky and condense them down. And you would need a hundred galaxies full of stars 
that you would put into your colon to equal the number of microbes that you have inside of you. And so these microbes, they live in balance. They live in harmony. We're talking about bacteria, fungi. Some people call those yeasts. Uh, bacteria, fungi, archaea. Some people have parasites and viruses. And they all live there in balance and in harmony. And this ecosystem is you know, conceptually very similar to what you see in the Amazon rainforest or in the Great Barrier Reef. These are places where there is life and that life that exists within that um, environment, it, it thrives on diversity. It thrives on balance and harmony. All creatures are interconnected and interwoven with one another. And, you know, like you could take one of the creatures out of the mix. You could take the sharks out of the Great Barrier Reef and that might seem like a good idea. And then that would actually make the entire ecosystem unstable because the sharks are there for a reason and they evolved to be a part of it. So living inside of us is conceptually something very similar. This balance that exists between good microbes and bad microbes. And they're all there with a purpose. They're not there just to like be leeches or parasites and consume our food. Instead, you know, really, Musa, if you were to look at the entirety of human history, there's never been a moment in human history where humans were sterile. We've always had a relationship with these microbes. We evolved with them. When we survived, they got to survive too. And so it is a symbiotic relationship that we're meant to have with our gut. And because of that, over the course of time, we grew to trust them. We actually outsourced really important parts of human function, human physiology to these microbes that aren't even a part of the human body. They're, they're not human cells. And we outsourced our digestion balance of our immune system, our metabolism, our hormones, our mood, our cognition, our memory, the expression of our genetics. Every single one of the things that I just mentioned, these microbes have the ability to have a say in how the body works. And so it's quite fascinating to consider how massively important they are. And then to consider that we just kind of discovered them very recently. We knew nothing about them. And now here we are and we're, our eyes are open and we go, oh my goodness, this is kind of important. And we were totally overlooking it. We were kind of making fun of them as just being poop. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, time, it's time for us to accept that the future of medicine exists here. This is going to be the next 30 years of clinical research. This is the real deal. It's not a fad. This is the future of medicine and it's going to change the way that we approach everything when it comes to healthcare. You're absolutely, I feel a catalyst in that, in that step towards where medicine should be. And for me, linking the importance of gut health was just an epiphany for me because nutrition is one of my greatest passions. And I, I've been really serious in my research and studying about nutrition. I understood what we eat ultimately becomes us and how affects our health. Um, but I didn't really understand the complexity of the gut. 
and how our gut health really determines our overall health. Uh, and that's something that just helped me grow tremendously in the understanding of of the power of plants and, and the natural foods and the harmful foods and how that really affects our health first through our gut. And, and another thing that blew my mind in your book was when you talked about how our brain health begins in our gut and the, the amount of nerves that go from our gut to our brain is like five times more than our spinal nerves uh, or something yeah. like that. Uh, could you yeah, tell that's us exactly about, correct. <laughs> could you tell us a little bit about how, how that makes sense for people who might have not read your book yet, how our brain health really begins in our gut or our second brain? You know, we exactly. The second brain is actually the term that we now use to describe the gut because the way that the brain works is not in isolation. Um, you know, it is, you know, it's probably the most important organ because you can't have the human experience without a functioning brain, but the brain's best friend is the gut. And they are in constant communication with each other. The people who are listening to us right now, Musa, their brain is talking to their gut and their gut is talking to their brain literally as we speak. And there's a number of different ways that the, this communication takes place. One of them, is through the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is essentially like a um, giant ethernet cable that, uh, that is allowing almost like this internet connection to occur between the brain and the gut. And it's carrying all this information from 500 million nerves that are carpeting the lining of the intestine. So you know, your gut is anywhere from 20 to 25 feet long. When I say that, I'm referring to from your lips all the way down to your bottom. That includes the esophagus, the stomach, the small intestine, and the colon. All right. So anywhere from 20 to 25 feet long, the whole thing is carpeted with nerves. It's like a shag carpet. And all those nerves, they're very simple in the way that they work. They're feeling and sensing. And they're designed to do things like if it doesn't like something, boom, pain signal. If it doesn't like something in the stomach, boom, nausea. Right. I mean, this is not your fingertip in the way that these nerves function. They're very simple. But here is your vagus nerve compiling this information where 500 million nerves are collecting information by the nanosecond and sending it upstairs through the vagus nerve so that your brain can understand what's going on in your gut. Your, your brain has a, a basically a wiretap to know what's going on at all times. And then at the same time, your gut is producing ways to communicate chemicals. For example, it produces neurotransmitters. 90% of the serotonin in your body, serotonin is the happy hormone. It affects our mood, it affects our focus, our ability to concentrate, our energy levels. It's the hormone that we target when we use antidepressant medications like Zoloft or Paxil or Prozac. 90% of serotonin is not produced in your brain. 90% of serotonin is produced in your gut. Only 10% of serotonin is actually produced in your brain. And we have evidence to suggest that your gut is able to affect your mood by producing serotonin precursors that can cross the blood brain barrier. Dopamine, dopamine is kind of an interesting neurotransmitter. A lot of conversation around dopamine these days because that is our addiction center, our reward center. When you, you know, when you pick up your phone 
and you click through like how many times a day, 550, like 600. When you pick up your phone and you click through, that is triggering a dopamine hit. 50% of dopamine is produced in your gut. Only half of it is produced in your brain. There's over 30 neurotransmitters produced in your gut. And not to mention that your gut interacts with your food and it doesn't just like break it down. It actually transforms it. There's a transformative process that takes place within the gut by the food, like the food that you eat gets transformed by these microbes and they can release things like short chain fatty acids, which come from fiber that will cross the blood blood, the blood brain barrier and actually affect things like focus, affect your memory. Uh, we have evidence to suggest that short chain fatty acids, which again, come from fiber, short chain fatty acids can prevent Alzheimer's disease. They can repair the blood brain barrier. And so, so the bottom line is that there's, you know, you can look at it like the gut has this combination of using the internet, using a telephone line, using smoke signals. Like there's multiple ways that your gut is communicating with your brain. But the bottom line is that your gut is communicating with your brain and it's happening literally right now. Wow. That, that is a really interesting just information because I, I didn't know any hormones were created in your gut. And that just, I mean, I went through med school and I didn't know that myself. <laughs> and I didn't know yeah. that when I graduated medical school. Cause that, that just changes the, the, if that alone doesn't make you concerned about the overall gut health you have that I don't know what will, because like if we took the hormones out of our brain, you know, the, how that affect our body. And I, I feel like a poor diet does really affect that. And I'm sure, you know, all about how poor diet, but is, is the serotonin, the happy hormone that's produced, is that always being produced regardless of what we eat or does plant or fiber rich food uh, enrich the serotonin production in general? Or is it whatever you eat that you like, does that really have a, a different effect on you? Well, if we're talking about eating to reduce depression, right, which is what you're kind of alluding to with serotonin. If we're talking about eating to allude to reduce depression, there was a study that came out in early December of 2020, so not that long ago, that was convincing that the gut microbiome is the driving force behind clinical depression. And what they showed was a distinct microbiome pattern among people who were depressed that tended to favor inflammatory gut bacteria. And these are the same gut bacteria that you get by, unfortunately, I hate to say it, but the same gut bacteria that you get by eating the standard Western diet, which is a lot of processed food, a lot of sugar, a lot of oil, and a lot of animal products. Those are the gut bacteria that you get that are inflammatory. And they showed that what was missing in this study, what was missing are the microbes that produce short chain fatty acids. These are the fiber consuming microbes. Point being, if you were to consume adequate amounts of fiber, you can change the balance of microbes within your gut. And this may be a way to actually prevent the development of depression. When it comes to the serotonin itself, 
we don't have any clear cut studies to say that, you know, if you eat this particular way or that particular way, this is how you boost serotonin specifically. But serotonin in the gut, the reason that it's there and so prevalent is that it, it affects gut motility. And so it's a measure of gut health that you have a balanced amount of serotonin. And when you have too much serotonin in the gut, the gut starts moving too fast. And then what happens is you get diarrhea. But the flip side is that when the gut is out of balance and you don't have enough serotonin and it's sluggish, things aren't moving the way they're supposed to, you get constipation. And so it can go either way. And this is, this is quite fascinating because if you think about conditions like irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, extremely common. This is a huge part of what I do for a living. And IBS is characterized by abdominal pain, a change in bowel habits like either diarrhea or constipation. And a huge percentage of these patients suffer with mood disturbance, whether it's anxiety, depression, or both. And now we kind of get and we understand that when you mess up the gut, you mess up serotonin, you mess up motility, you mess up these nerves in the gut. So that's why you feel pain and you mess up the mood. And this is why it all comes back to one place. People with IBS and they have anxiety. It's not because anxiety is causing their gut to be upset. The issue is that because their gut is damaged, brain and their mood is not where it needs to be. And the gut is the root of the problem. With, with the gut being the root of the problem, that I don't, I don't think is ever explained to anyone if they go to see a psychiatrist for mental health issues or if they go see a, a lot of doctors in general, they're not going to be like, well, your gut is the core. They, I, from my experience, it's just like, here's these medications for your symptoms and you know, we'll, we'll see you again in a few months or whatever. Well, and then there's an interesting point with that. Um, they actually have done microbiome studies when people take antidepressants. And what they've, what they've uh, discovered is that by taking antidepressants, you actually are altering the gut microbiome. And so it's quite fascinating to consider that perhaps even the antidepressants, part of the way that they're functioning, I'm not saying this is the only story, but one of the ways that the gut, that the antidepressants are affecting our mood is actually to rebalance the gut microbiome. Kind of fascinating. That is, that is very fascinating. And, and, and it's it's something that I, I appreciate so much from you and the work you do because like you even mentioned you you try to get to the root cause which I think is such a amazing trait for a doctor in the field talking to so many people because you could easily probably just give them prescriptions for IBS but you're you're educating them on what to do and you know you give them your medication but the goal is not to stay on the medication forever and I see that definitely from the work you do and from everything you put out uh what what kind of things do you usually tell someone who has you know severe cases of those those issues like ibs uh to obviously i'm not saying just not take medicine because sometimes i'm sure that's needed in the beginning but how do you recover to actually get your health uh your gut health in a in a place is it as simple as eating more fiber well sometimes 
Sometimes it is because because the one of the issues that we have in the United States is that we are perhaps the most fiber deficient society of the modern era. You know, you think about the way that we eat, our diet is 60% processed food where that that is food where we have removed the fiber. So we took out the best part of the food, threw that in the trash. And then we pour all kinds of like industrial chemicals that we don't really know what they do to our body. We pour those in so that you can put this food on the shelf of your store and it will be like exactly the same three years from now as it was the day it went into the package. I mean, and yet and we just accept that as normal. Like, oh, that's just, you know, it's just what we eat. It's like, okay, that's kind of weird. Food is meant to decompose. Food is supposed to break down at some point and not be the exact same for three years. So, and you know, that's a huge part of our diet and 30% of our diet is animal products. Uh, the average person in the United States eats more than their body weight in meat on a yearly basis. And yet there are some fad diets that will tell you it's not enough. We need more. We need even more meat. Your body weight is not enough. It's like, okay, <laughs> I don't think that really makes sense to me. I think that the issue here is that just 10% of our diet is fruits, vegetables, whole grain, seeds, nuts, and legumes only 10%. And among that 10%, the number one food is French fries. So we're not getting fiber. And the average American is getting 15 to 17 gram fiber per day. And that's actually quite pathetically low. And that's the average person. That means that half the people are getting less than that. 95% um, of Americans are not getting the minimal recommended amount of fiber in their diet. So if you take a person who is completely fiber starved, because they are, I mean, they could be morbidly obese. And I would describe that person as overfed, but undernourished. And their gut microbiome is starving because it has not been fed fiber, which is the preferred food of these gut microbes. And so if you take this person and you restore their gut microbiome, by simply empowering it with its preferred food. I mean, these, Musa, these microbes, they are as alive as you and I are. They're alive, they need energy. And they don't all eat potatoes. Like they all, they don't all eat French fries. That's not gonna cut it. They need fiber and they need fiber from multiple different varieties of plants because each plant has its own unique blend of fiber that will support the growth and the health of different families of microbes within the gut. And we want as many of those microbes to be thriving as possible. We want to support all of them if we can. And the way that we do that is by eating a diet, consuming a diet that has a wide variety, a wide diversity of plants. And when you do this, if you are someone who is just completely fiber starved, all of a sudden you bring your gut microbiome to life. You start to restore it. And when you restore it, look, human physiology depends on these microbes. We never had processed food until recently. We came up as humans with millions of years of eating real food, not processed food, eating a mix of both plants and some animal products but if you look back, most of the evidence with our ancestors was that they consumed 90 or more grams of fiber per day. And here we are, and we're averaging 15 to 17 grams in the US. 
So I do think in some cases, Musa, that it, it really is actually quite that simple that when you can advance a person's diet towards a more plant-based diet, you will see radical radical changes, radical improvements. And frankly, this is what motivated me to start my Instagram account in 2016 and then to eventually pursue writing a book because I felt like I was seeing radical transformations in my clinic from people who were suffering and what they were suffering were the consequences of fiber deficiency. And when I addressed that in my clinic and these people with digestive disorders, I was seeing radical transformations that defied what I was taught during my training and that were superior to what I was able to accomplish with a prescription pad. And so, so I do think that in many cases it does become that simple, but the reality is that at the end of the day, we want to get to the heart of the problem. And if it's a digestive issue, almost every single time, the heart of the problem is damage to the gut microbiome. So approaching that is more than just simply eating fiber. Approaching that is having a well-rounded plan that does include dietary change, but also includes lifestyle, getting a good night's rest, getting exercise, managing stress, spending time outdoors, spending time with people you love, doing all those things, and also being conscious of, well, how did we get here in the first place? You know, for each, each individual person, whether it's you, whether it's me, whether it's the person who's listening to us at home right now, we all have a story. We're not just a diagnosis code. We're a unique human that has a story about how we got to where we are today. And many times what I find when I interview my patients in great detail is that part of the story includes things like a history of repeated antibiotic use, whether it be acne or sinus infections, seasonal allergies, something during their childhood, like ear infections. Many of them have repeated uh, antibiotic exposures and um, others have other medications or they have some sort of traumatic event that occurred or a history of disordered eating or they got an infection when they were traveling. And all of these things are possibilities that could explain why a person has a damaged gut microbiome. You mentioned it a little bit before um, and I know you talked about it in, in detail in your book, but what, what was the negative effects of antibiotics? Well, you know what, you're talking a little bit about the ecosystem. The measure of health within any ecosystem is biodiversity, as we mentioned before. And when you reduce biodiversity, what you find is that, you know, the, the gut is meant to be harmonized with a balance and a mix of microbes. And when you start kicking some of them out of there and they disappear, the other microbes aren't necessarily designed to step up and fill the void that was made by removing certain species or families of microbes. And so what we've found is that when you lose diversity within the microbiome, there is the emergence of disease. We see this with obesity, with diabetes, with coronary artery disease, and we see it with digestive disorders like irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, celiac disease. All of these things have been associated with a loss of diversity in the gut. Antibiotics don't add diversity. It doesn't work that way. Antibiotics are antibiotic. 
They are designed to destroy microbes. And, you know, if you look at the history of healthcare, it makes a lot of sense how we got to where we are today, which is that if you went back in time, you would find that most people were dying from infections. The average life expectancy entering into the, the 20th century was around 50 or 55 years because a lot of people were dying of infections. The top causes of death were not heart disease or cancer. The top causes of death at that time were pneumonia and tuberculosis and influenza. Enter in penicillin. It's World War II. We discover penicillin and it completely changes the game. All of a sudden we have treatment for the number one cause of death, number two cause of death, number three cause of death. All of a sudden we have a way that we can fix these issues. And when you find something that powerful, it completely makes sense that you start to say, this is so good. We need more of that. And so you start using and using and using and using and using and you overdo it. And that brings us to where we are today, which is that we've been overdoing it on antibiotics for a while. We've been pushing it too hard. We've been taking them like they're Skittles and not even thinking twice about it and not understanding that there's a downside. And the downside is this, you take a course of antibiotics. I'll give you an example, Cipro. All right, so Cipro is an antibiotic often used to treat urinary tract infections. Um, I will use it when I treat digestive infections. Like for example, a person has, you know, uh, uh, gastroenteritis, I might use Cipro. A person has diverticulitis, I might use Cipro. Five days of Cipro wipes out about 35% of the bacteria in your gut. 35%. Now, you know, we talked about there's about 39 trillion bugs in there. So 35% of 39 trillion is more than 10 trillion bugs. That's a lot that we're killing. And then what ends up happening is you've now created this void. It's like you're dropping napalm into this, into this area and you create this void and guess who survives the napalm drop? the Cipro resistant bugs. So now we have more antibiotic resistance. Those guys are more powerful and they become more well represented. Meanwhile, the ones that you just killed, which includes mostly good guys, by the way, like you're not just killing the bad guys, you're killing more good guys than you are bad guys. Those guys, those guys are not nearly as powerful as they used to be. And so what we see Musa is that when a person takes antibiotics, it takes time to recover. And the other thing is you can actually see changes in the gut microbiome that are persistent for years. You never really quite get back to exactly where you were before the antibiotic. I think that's such an important thing to know because if you're going to take antibiotics, which is probably necessary in a lot of cases, to have that knowledge and that awareness and, and have it with intention that you need to work on recovery for your gut prior to your use of antibiotics, which I think most people don't really understand the ramifications of using antibiotics. So thank you uh, for that. You kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier when you were talking about processing food and GRAS in your book. Yeah. Yeah. Why should we be concerned about GRAS? 
All right, GRAS. So people who are perplexed, what the heck are these guys talking about? <laughs> All right, um, read your GRAS. Well, that that's fair. Uh, that's that. This would be chapter two, but um, GRAS is a an, an expression or an acronym that stands for generally recognized as safe, and this this is a label that is being applied by the Food and Drug Administration of the United States of America that allows things, specifically chemicals or additives, to enter into our food supply without human testing. There is no requirement that you test these chemicals before putting them into the food supply. You simply need to fill out paperwork, and that paperwork is largely based on assumptions. You can say, well, I'm gonna compare this to this, and therefore I don't think this is gonna be problematic and you can get something approved. It's a very different process than what we what we use for our drugs. You know, if you're gonna bring a, a drug to market, um, you know, some sort of medication, it goes through a series of steps, phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials. Phase three clinical trials are large scale human studies where you are assessing the risk and the benefit of a medication. Now, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you that we should be leaning even more on medications than we are. No, I think that we, what we've done is we've created a health system that's overly reliant on medications and ignores diet and lifestyle, which makes no sense to me. But the problem that we have is that these chemicals are entering into our food supply and there's 10,000 of them. And at least 80% of them have never had a human study to demonstrate whether or not they're safe. And if they do human studies, they're short-term studies. So we don't have information on, well, what if you eat you know, those Cheez-Its for the next 10 years? What if you eat those Cheez-Its for the next 50 years? What does that do to the body? What about the stuff that's in there? And how do you, if people start getting sick, let's pretend hypothetically that people start getting autoimmune disease and there's an explosion of celiac and Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Oh wait, this isn't theoretical. This is actually what's happening. Well, how do you unravel 10,000 different chemicals in our food supply, most of which did not exist 100 years ago? How do you unravel that to figure out which ones are the cause? It's nearly impossible. It's nearly impossible because the only way to do this is to start going back to the ones that have already been approved, already made it into the food supply, they're not being taken out, and going back and studying them and seeing what actually happens. And so I have concerns about the approach that's being taken. And it's not, Musa, it's not that I sit here and say all chemicals are dangerous. It's not that I sit here and say that all food, all parts of our food supply that are processed are bad for us. No, that would be overstating it, but it's more to say that we don't know. We don't know. And we are forced to make one of two assumptions. We can either assume that these chemicals that were never a part of the human diet until very recently, we can either assume that they are safe, which is what we're currently doing. We're assuming safety of these chemicals or we can assume that they are not safe. Well, our government has made their mind, their mind up that they're going to assume that these chemicals in our food supply are safe. 
And then we have to fight, fight, fight to try to figure out if any of them are a problem. But we as the consumers ultimately have the power. I think it's important for people to understand that your government is not going to make you healthy. Because if they were, if your government was going to make you healthy, they would have done it. Think of how much money they spend on Medicare on a yearly basis. It's dragging down our country. It's literally dragging down our economy. And if they were capable of fixing that problem, they would. But no, 70% of Americans are overweight. 40% of Americans are obese. We have an epidemic of diabetes, of heart disease, of cancer. And we have an epidemic of autoimmune disease. And the only way to know that these chemicals are safe, from my perspective, is to take them away. That's the safest play because at the end of the day, nature was designed to, to provide humans with what they need from a nutritional perspective. It's quite amazing and striking how it all is designed so perfectly for us. And we've chosen to take it into our own hands by developing new foods that didn't exist before. And I have concerns that the autoimmune epidemic and the obesity epidemic comes back to the increased consumption of these highly refined, ultra-processed foods that are waiting with chemicals, which is what's happened basically since we were kids. I'm a little bit older than you, but <laughs> since the 80s. Yeah, that that's one that always, the more I hear about GRAS and those chemicals, the, the more it, it really makes me angry <laughs> that so many chemicals are allowed in our food supply and they've never actually been tested. Uh, and that's taking the ownership of that, right? We could just blame the government, but you, you said it perfectly. We have ultimate responsibility on being healthy and safe. And, and you mentioned a lot about the cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and those things. One of the ones I wanted to ask you about with regards to the gut health and fiber intake how much of that affects colon cancer? Hugely, hugely. So colon cancer, the, the number two cause of cancer death in the United States. Uh, we're expecting more than 150,000 people to be diagnosed with colon cancer in 2021. Um, we uh, will see probably 65,000 people die of colon cancer and Right now, statistically, about one in 20 people will get colon cancer at some point during their life. That's a lot. I mean, think about your high school and think about how many new colon cancers that's going to be among people that you were friends with from high school. So, and it's interesting because most other countries don't have the problem that we have. You know, if you were to go and look, for example, they did this one study that was kind of interesting, Musa, where they looked at people from India and they noticed there's not much colon cancer over there in India. And um, we had literally, we have literally 800% more colon cancer in the United States than what they have in India, 800%. Now, if that was 25% more, that would be disturbing. Like we don't wanna have 25% more colon cancer than another country. We have 800% more. And when they did this study, Musa, they said, well, maybe it's a genetic thing. You know, um, 
the majority of Americans are descended from Europeans. That's a different population than the people from India. Maybe it's genetics. So what they did is they looked at first generation people from India who moved to the United States. Like literally, they just came here. And they started to adopt some of the American lifestyle uh, habits. And, you know, I'm sure kept some of their, their traditions that they celebrate. And they discovered that among that population, they had 400% more colon cancer than their family back home. So in one generation, they saw a jump of 400% more colon cancer. What's the deal? Well, we know actually, Musa, that there are a couple things from a dietary perspective that play into the development of colon cancer. On the positive side, you can prevent colon cancer with short chain fatty acids. Butyrate actually directly impairs the development of colon cancer cells. And this has been shown on multiple levels of scientific evidence. If you look at, you know, basics, uh, like basic lab studies, what you will find is that, okay, butyrate prevents, prevents colon cancer. But then the question that always comes up is, well, then do we see that in humans? Is that true in humans? And there was a study published by Andrew Reynolds in the journal Lancet in January of 2019. It was the largest study to date to look at the effects of dietary fiber on human health. And what they showed was that people who consume more fiber, fiber gets turned into butyrate. What they showed in the study is that people who consume more fiber have decreased risk of developing colon cancer during their lifetime. And it was a dose response relationship. The more fiber that you consumed, the less likely, likely you were to develop colon cancer. So it was further evidence to really strongly suggest that there's this connection. Now, the flip side, what are the foods that we've seen in epidemiology studies that are connected to actually developing colon cancer? There's two big ones. One is processed meats, like hot dogs or cold cuts, things like that. And the second is red meat. And these two things have been labeled as carcinogens by the IARC, which is a part of the World Health Organization. So both red meat and processed meats have been labeled as carcinogens and people question, so how does that work? Why is that? And we now Musa, have microbiome studies that show that when you eat these foods, red meat and processed meats, you reshape your microbiome to have more microbes that transform bile from your liver into what are called secondary bile salts. So bile is produced in our liver. It's a digestive juice. It's normal. And it's meant to help us break down and process the fat in our diet. Well, when you consume a high fat diet with red meat and processed meats, you get more bile. That increase in bile affects the microbiome. There's certain microbes that thrive in that environment. And those microbes produce what are called secondary bile salts. And the secondary bile salts have been connected to the development of colon cancer. So it could go both ways. You could, you could choose food designed to reduce your risk of developing colon cancer. And that's fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes. That's where the fiber exists. And by eating fiber, that's how you get the short chain fatty acids that protect you. Or alternatively, you could eat the American way and eat more than your body weight in meat, 
and end up with microbes that thrive in an environment and produce secondary bile salts that increase our risk of developing colon cancer. And right now, in terms of the scale of balance, what we have is we have a country that is favoring eating the stuff that actually produces colon cancer. And this is why we have such a problem. That's a lot of a lot of good information, Dr. B. And that can really just th this podcast in general by someone listening, it can really just just like your book did for me, reevaluate every decision we make when it comes to what we put in our stomach and our body. And diversity of plants is really the message that rings in my head now. Uh, every time I go to eat or go grocery shopping is diversity of plants. So I thank you for that, <laughs> for giving me that that nugget and everyone else who's read your book and and, and follow your work. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time, Dr. B. I appreciate you so much. Before we wrap this up, I really don't want to, but before we do, can you give us a uh, best place to reach you out and a little bit more about your work with the plant-fed gut? Yeah, man. Uh, so... You know, I, I never really thought that this was going to happen. I, life is a journey and you just never know uh, what direction life is going to take you. I have, I had no desire to ever be an author. Um, I never thought that I would be an Instagram or social media person. I actually kind of don't like it at all. And uh, now it's like hilarious because here I am and I'm closing in on 250,000 followers and on Instagram. And I have a New York Times bestselling book that sold more than 100,000 copies in eight months. And um, so it's pretty wild. My book is called Fiber Fueled. And it is all about if you've enjoyed this conversation, then you're going to enjoy the book because basically we take everything that we've talked about here and we just, we keep going deeper. We unpack it. We go in different directions. There's a lot, I mean, Moose, I'm sure you would agree. There's a lot of stuff that we could continue to talk about that we haven't even touched on yet. And um, so my book is called Fiber Fueled. It's available anywhere the books are sold. And my Instagram is the Gut Health MD. I'm also on Facebook under the same name, the Gut Health MD. And I started a course. Um, actually, I've been working on this for more than a year, almost a year and a half. And I beta tested it twice. And then I launched it in September of 2020 for the first time and got amazing results. 96% uh, of people who took the course felt that because of taking the course, they had things moving in the right direction, the direction that they wanted to go. So and if you think about it, 96% of people, I mean, that is um, not easy to pull off 24 out of 25 people. So, um, so my course is called the plant fed gut. And it's basically it's a seven week immersive course where you have live sessions with me. There's a live sessions every single week. There's video content, there's audio content, there's a workbook, there is a Facebook group where, where people are super active and helping one another and sharing information. Um, there's recipes. I mean, basically like I, I wanted to create an immersive environment for healing. And it's really designed for people that want to optimize their gut microbiome, whether that be because of digestive issues or for whatever reason you have. I mean, I have some people who are healthy and they take the course because they really believe in gut health and they want to optimize their gut. So, and I'm super proud of it. I, um, I have to tell you that 
you know, for me, I often feel like I get back more than I ever deserved from all of this. I've worked really hard. I'm a big believer in hard work. That's just a part of who I am. But when I get messages from people, literally from around the world, telling me that their life has been changed and it's the book or it's the course that did it for them, it's I'm a doctor um, and that is a dream come true. So, and I'm so very grateful to come on your show and talk to you and these people who are listening and, um, and, you know, look forward to continuing the conversation with them, whether it be through my Instagram, the book, the course, or all of the above. Thank you, Dr. B. I truly believe the greatest gift we can give is ourselves and our time. And you've done that here with me. And I appreciate your time more than I can express. I know this is going to be so valuable as it was the first time I heard you on a podcast, how valuable that was for me. So uh, I thank you for all the work you do. And it's been a great honor. Okay, my friends, take care of yourself. Thank you again. That is all for this episode. Thank you for tuning in. If you found any value in this episode, someone you know will also. Please share, subscribe, leave a rating and review so we can reach more people, have a farther ripple and a larger impact. Stay grateful. I appreciate you. And remember, you are a conqueror.